What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you on the line with us. Noah Greenwald, he's the Endangered Species Director for the Center for Biological Diversity. Biologicaldiversity.org is the website. His Twitter handle is Noah underscore Arc underscore 757. Noah, welcome to the program. So glad to have you with us. Oh, thanks, Tom. I subscribe to Nature, you know, and, and they have a daily newsletter. And a couple of days ago, one of the one of the top stories that they highlighted was how there are an estimated 10,000 potentially pathogenic, as yet unidentified viruses in the reservoir of wild animals around the world. And that with increasing frequency, this is where syphilis came from, it's where the flu came from, it's where, I mean, you pick your disease, right? Smallpox, measles, mumps, they all came out of animals originally, and we can identify the time that they did, you know, and many of them just came out in the the last thousand years, some of them in the last few hundred years. And the same with MERS and SARS and now the coronavirus, uh, these have all emerged in the last 20 years. And in every case, it was the result of humans decreasing the habitat of wild animals, decreasing wild Wild habitat, and as we were decreasing that wild habitat, the diseases that were being kept stable and away from us in that habitat were attacking us. And so, in that context, it seems to me really important that we not destroy the wild anymore. Yet, that's exactly what the Trump administration is trying to do. Tell us about this. Yeah, so the Trump administration proposed a new rule in the last week that makes it harder to protect habitat for endangered species. You know, I absolutely agree with you in that diseases are coming from nature and that if we want to avoid that problem, we have to protect more of the natural world. And in fact, the UN has a goal 30 by 30 and 50 by 50, which would mean we would protect 30% of the natural world by 2030 and 50% by 2050. And that's under the Convention on Biological Diversity. The U.S. is unfortunately one of the One of only two countries that hasn't signed on to that. So that's unfortunate. In this case, what the Trump administration is doing is under the Endangered Species Act, when a species is listed as threatened or endangered, one of the requirements is that the Fish and Wildlife Service designate critical habitat for them. And um, that Mm -hmm. is the area that they need to survive and recover. 
and it can include areas where they don't currently occur. And that's really important because otherwise the only protections that endangered species get are for where they actually occur. And oftentimes endangered species have lost lots of range. And so they need to be recovered to a bigger area in order to be secure. What this does is it says essentially that for an area to be designated as critical habitat, it has to have habitat right now. And that's problematic in a lot of ways. So, for example, the northern spotted owl, right now it has over 9 million acres of critical habitat. And many of those acres aren't the old growth forests that the bird needs. They're young forests that have been logged, but they'll eventually become old growth. Under this proposed rule, Fish and Wildlife Service wouldn't be able to do that. They wouldn't be able to designate those areas because they presently don't have habitat. And in fact, under a settlement with the timber industry, the Trump administration is expected to issue a revised designation of critical habitat for the owl any day. And so we'll see how this rule impacts that. Are they doing all this just for the logging industry or are there other industries that want to, you know, basically rape nature? Well, it's interesting. I mean, there are other industries, um, the oil and gas industry in particular, you know, is one that's causing a lot of habitat destruction and has been in recent decades. So that's another one. But in this case, you know, so this this rule stemmed from some litigation over a species called the dusky gopher frog, which occurs in the southeast. It's It's one of many species that's dependent on longleaf pine forests. And so it, it it is actually the timber industry that drove this because that that lawsuit was brought in part by Weyerhaeuser. And so what, what happened is the frog needs ephemeral ponds, ponds that are wet in the spring and that's where they lay their eggs and then it dries up and so there's not fish in there to prey on their eggs. And then otherwise it mostly lives in the forest. It, it's restricted to basically one pond in Mississippi. And so you can imagine that one pond is does not make a species secure. You know, if anything happens to that, the species yeah. is basically gone. So the, the Fish and Wildlife Service has designated some critical habitat in Louisiana as well that had the ephemeral ponds, and um, but the frog hadn't been seen there since the 1960s. And the land was actually leased to warehouser for logging it didn't have the right kind of forest it had slash pine rather than longleaf pine forest so they argued that since it didn't have the longleaf pine forest it couldn't be critical habitat even though it could be restored to that and it had the ephemeral ponds which are actually kind of the more limiting thing for the frog warehouser and it's one interesting twist about this was that Warehouser didn't own the land, and the landowner argued that the critical habitat impinged on him because he wanted to develop the land, which Warehouser has no interest in, obviously, because it would end their lease, essentially. But Warehouser sued anyway, which I, I hold that against them. I do. And so they, they lost at the district court. They lost at the appeals court. They took it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court gave them a very narrow ruling saying Fish and Wildlife Service hadn't defined habitat and has to do that. And so that's what generated this rule. Ah, I see. So, and I probably should have used the word pillage instead of the word rape. But in any case, 
how extensive is the destruction of nature in the United States and around the world? Is that a number that you have at your fingertips? You know, I I haven't seen anyone quantify that number, you know, and that would be an interesting thing to try and do. But, you know, we have been losing a lot, in particular, you know, something like old growth forests. Luckily, mm-hmm. we had the Northwest Forest Plan for the owl and the merlet and for salmon in Oregon and Washington. So we protected a lot of what was remaining. But in exchange, we basically let go of it on private and state land. So we've continued to see loss of old growth forests in the Northwest. You know, other examples are in the last 10, 15 years, we saw massive oil and gas development in North Dakota on the back end oil reserves and then in the Permian Basin in New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma. So we've seen, you know, massive habitat destruction there as well. The Permian Basin's been the biggest oil play in the world for, you know, the last decade or so. Tar sands in Canada, you know, so we we continue to see habitat destruction ongoing in North America and in the world. I'm 52, and so in my lifetime, the human population has gone from three and a half billion to seven billion, and um, that in combination with consumption patterns has, you know, really led to a great deal of of habitat destruction. Yeah, just the the pressure of humanity, as it were. Noah Greenwald, the Native Species Director with the Center for Biological Diversity, biologicaldiversity.org. Noah, thanks so much for dropping by and, and filling us in on all this. It's fascinating and, frankly, a little horrifying what the, what the Trump administration is trying to do. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Great talking with you. We'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls. Speaking the truth, the multinational corporations would really rather you didn't know about The Hartman Report is a free daily podcast, seven days a week, and you can find our entire three-hour podcast over at TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman here with you and Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Hey, good afternoon, Tom. How apropos is Noah Greenwald? I'm calling with my uh, perceived and somewhat hoped for post-COVID cultural shifts. And uh, what I'm seeing and and hearing around my circles is there's a trend in some reductionism and maybe minimalism from people in terms of consumption and their own footprint and more philosophically simplifying their lives. Mm -hmm. People's lives have been pared back in ways and humans will invent ways to shortcut things and save things. And as a result of it, a lot of them are looking at their pre-COVID life and deciding, I didn't really need that. I was, you know, spending all this time to get the greater earnings, to have those things. And I don't really find myself missing those things. So why not just have the time and, you know, kind of develop myself, my own skills, these home projects and things that people we've seen are are taking on. So I hope that carries over. And in another area specifically, right on the button with NOAA, habitat loss has been something I've been fighting against for 40 years, and it directly relates to human population size, which he ended up on. I mean, I had no idea you were going to have him on today and discuss that. 
but I've been on hold, and I'm like, wow, Noah's, like, mentioning all the things that might benefit from some of these changes, these post-COVID changes that I hope we do see. Yeah, amazing. Yep. Eric, and thank you so- for the call. It's great to hear from you. Peter in Clinton, New York. Uh, hi. I just, I'd like a clarification about the uh, First Amendment as it relates to COVID. Remember mm-hmm. way back when we were learning about the First Amendment and you can't yell fire in a theater. And right. isn't Fox doing that? Meaning, aren't they causing yes. harm by putting out false information constantly? I believe that they are, and they've been subject to a couple of lawsuits around this. I'm not sure where any of those lawsuits stand right now. We should get somebody from Media Matters for America on the program to talk about it. But yeah, I think right. that that's exactly what they're doing. They are. But I they thought are it was a criminal situation. Uh, wasn't there liability it, for the person who yelled the fire? It. it conceivably could be. I think that all, I I believe all the lawsuits are civil, but at the very least, they're doing a disservice to this country. You know, surprise, surprise, they're owned by an Australian billionaire. You think he really cares about America? We'll be back. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Although, truth be told, Rupert Murdoch has done this to the United Kingdom and to Australia as well. Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister of Australia, called him a cancer on Australian society. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. We're going to do a national town hall meeting with Congressman Ro Khanna. He is the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the Silicon Valley area of California in the U.S. House of Representatives. Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov is his website. You can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for joining us this hour. Congressman, I see that you, Senator Nina Turner, San Juan Mayor Carmen Cruz, and Ben and Jerry's co-founder Ben Cohen, the four co-chairs of Bernie Sanders' 2020 campaign, are calling for the Democratic Party to put an explicit, unambiguous pledge of Medicare for all into their platform. Do you think that's going to work? We're pushing it, Tom. I mean, it's common sense when millions of people are losing their jobs, they shouldn't lose their health care. And as you know, this has been part of our platform. It was part of our platform in 1976. It actually was still part of the platform in 1980. It was stripped in 1984 because of the Reagan revolution. But Jimmy Carter ran and won on single-payer universal coverage. It was something that our party has fought for since Harry Truman. So all we're asking for is to go back to what this platform always should have been. There's 700 delegates of Bernie's delegates who've signed this. I think there's going to be a real push at the convention to have this included. Great. And also, I see that you and uh, Bernie, you in the House, he in the Senate, have dropped a bill. Masks for all. Tell us about that. Well, the idea is very simple. Uh, We ought to be sending every American three reusable masks. Partly, this will have information about why masks are needed. And the research uh, shows that it will actually improve compliance. People, if they get it and they get the information, are more likely uh, to wear the masks. And then in some cases, with essential workers and people who are doing work that's exposing them, we should be providing the masks. I mean, uh, if their employers aren't providing it, which in some cases they aren't, our government can step up and do that. It's at uh, less than 1% of our defense budget, and it would save lives. I think uh, most people would say right now the biggest threat to our safety is coronavirus. Yeah. Amen. Congressman, those are my questions. I'm, I'm curious if before we pick up your phone calls here and people are stacking up right now to talk to you, if there's anything in particular that you wanted to direct our attention to before we begin. Well, of course, the big work this week is on the stimulus and the arguments that progressives are making is we should not compromise on the $600 a week. I mean, that is necessary. We need to get a stimulus. I mean, some of us have been calling for a recurring stimulus, and we need to get money for state and local government, and we should not be giving some blanket immunity or liability to corporations. We're not keeping workers safe. So I've been pleased so far that 
Speaker Pelosi and Schumer, Senator Schumer, have held the line. And I really think we've got to get a bill that helps workers. I understand that the Republicans are saying that the reason why $600 a week is too much is because that's enough money that it causes people to say, I don't want to look for work. I'm fat and happy here with 300 bucks or 600 bucks a week. If that's the case, what should we cut CEO and executive salaries down to to incentivize those people to work? If $600 is the, you know, is too much, should we cut CEO pay to $400 a week? That's a, a funny way of looking at it, a good way of looking at it. And the reality is we're in a pandemic. Look, I think it's an absurd argument even in normal times uh, because I've yet to meet people who wouldn't want the dignity of a job and the security of a job compared to the uncertainty of $600 a week. But at a time where you have five times the job seekers, the job openings, and where literally a lot of restaurants and a lot of businesses can't open, it's absurd to say that people should go find more. Where are the jobs? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Anyhow, let's pick up phone calls here. John in Huntsville, Alabama. John, you are on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hi, gentlemen. My comment is this free market capitalism that we've been dealing with for the last 40 years has not been working for the people at all. And Republicans keep saying they want this to run as our country to run as a business. If it's a capitalist business, there should be a profit. So I say we call their bluff at this uh, last big poker hand no limit poker tournament here and we use the dnc use the campaign of capitalism for all that if we're going to be run as a country the people there's profit from a business and the people who should be reaping the benefits from that profit is we the people we should get a roi a return on investment what do you think well john i definitely think that we need to have a return on investment to people and a lot of things that that we do certainly starting with the investments in national institute of health and in a lot of the drugs. I mean, those are done by tax dollars, and yet private pharma companies are allowed to price gouge on them. That is one place where people should have a return. We ought to be putting money into our education, our childcare, our healthcare, so that the gains of the economy are actually investing in our people. But I definitely think that to the extent we have capitalism, it has to be stakeholder capitalism, which is that every American and every worker has a stake in it, not uh, shareholder maximization, which we've seen in the last 30 years. Joe in Cupertino, California, you're on the air with, I assume he's your congressman. Good morning, sir. Uh, My question is uh, the difference between a first responder, uh, like a a firefighter, paramedic, like an EMT or a a nurse, and an essential worker. I I think that there's a big difference. I mean, sending everybody back to work at Tesla and 130 people come to come down with COVID, is is that an essential worker or is that an emergency worker? I don't know. I just wondered if we could get some clarification because I think putting people at risk for profits is not really in my best interest of the country. Joe, I agree with you, and I think this is why California has had this outbreak. We made exceptions for people like companies like Tesla that we shouldn't have. That's not essential work. I mean, essential work is people who are getting us food, people who are getting us medicine, people who are taking care of individuals who are sick. The idea that businesses have used these loopholes and then they aren't having the proper PPE equipment or the proper protection uh, is partly what's led to these dramatic increases in cases and and debts. I mean, other countries aren't having this issue. Justin in West Hills, California, with just a minute to the break, Justin, quick one. 
Yeah, thank you for taking my call. I wanted to talk to you guys about the Democratic National Committee platform, which rejected an amendment calling on the party to support marijuana legalization as an official 2020 policy plank. And this is very, very important, and it goes to Congressman Rokana's previous statement about how he is worried about getting the vote out. This is an issue that two-thirds of Americans support. And this is insane that we have gone back from 2016 where it passed by one vote. And in that same vote, in that same uh, 2016 committee, they voted against, uh, they voted against hemp. But now in 2020, we can't pass marijuana. This is nuts. Thank you for the call. Congressman, real quick. Justin, I share your uh, outrage. I mean, we should have passed it. It makes sense. It's a racial justice issue. And I do agree with you. These are the things that will frustrate young people and it, it, we can't be taking uh, young people, voter for, voters of color for granted. We've got to get a big turnout. Uh, so I share your frustration yeah. on that issue. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Hey, we have a new video up over at TomHartman.com. It's astonishing. Just think about this. This year alone, with this one source of revenue, according to Senator Bernie Sanders, quote, this year alone we could fund tuition-free college for all, eliminate child hunger, ensure clean drinking water for every American household, build half a million affordable housing units, provide face masks for everybody, produce the protective gear and medical supplies our health workers need for the pandemic, and fully fund the U.S. Post Office. Now, what is this magical thing that we could do that would produce enough money to do all these things? Fund the Internal Revenue Service. Republicans have cut its funding so badly since 2010 that fully a third of their enforcement is no longer happening. And tax cheats have walked off. They're basically refusing to pay over $260 billion in taxes this year. You can hear the whole thing over at TomHartman.com. Congressman Ro Khanna taking your calls for the hour. And Carol in Valencia, California, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Good morning. Thank you so much. I am very concerned about Trump losing and the right-wing militia that is armed to the teeth. They're not keeping it quiet. Their idea is they're going to have a revolution. And, of course, it only took 10 percent of our country to go into the American Revolution, and they have 30 or 40 percent. What are we doing about that? What is Congress going to do? Will the police support us, or will they support them? Will the Army back us up? Well, Carol, I could have imagined we'd ever have to worry about this. Yeah, no, but I, I think it's a legitimate fear that you have a very polarized country, you have the president stoking fear, already diminishing the validity of the results, setting it up to say that it was stolen, it was robbed, and it's a volatile situation. I think we have to be focused on first protecting the right to vote, protecting efforts at suppression, and then make sure that we are in a position to have order and not allow uh, the subversion of of democratic processes. I mean, it is a very scary time for the country. Don in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Thank you for taking my call, uh, Congressman. I was wondering in the new stimulus package, if recent college grads and the inability to get jobs will be addressed. I believe 18% of recent college grads are homeless 
my son just graduated with a master's degree and can't get a job. So I'll uh, listen for your answer. Thank you. Well, thank you, Don, and I uh, appreciate that about your son. I've heard this from a lot of folks in, in my own district. I mean, people are graduating. The jobs just aren't there. I think this is why we need to have student loan forgiveness. This is why we need to have some massive public works program. I've called for a digital public works corps that there are a lot of digital jobs that we need. Why not have the federal government create those and put people to work and get some of these young college graduates doing things? But I think we're going to need the federal government to step up to help create these new job opportunities for people and to forgive loans and and to provide some stimulus in the meantime. James in Hollywood, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Good evening, Professor and Congressman. Congressman, we need a standalone bill and $25 billion for the post office, standalone, bring up the vote, instantly count the votes and make it public. And there's your campaign. Shame, Moscow Mitch, to bring it up. Voting by mail is twice as safe. Voting fraud is a Republican hoax. James, I agree with you. I would support having a separate bill, and let's put people on record on where they stand, and let's make people vote against funding the post office. I mean, it's a a, a complete Republican attempt to prevent uh, voting and to to privatize the, the postal service, and we should expose it and not let it stand. Yeah, I was so pleased to hear uh, President Obama call that out in John Lewis's and Congressman Lewis's funeral. Yeah, no, he gave a very strong speech. I mean, that was it was great. He called out the filibuster. It was brilliant. It was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Congressman Ro Khanna, the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, represents California, Silicon Valley, and the House of Representatives, taking your calls. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. NetSuite.com slash Hartman. That's NetSuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, 
propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book in today's uh, Tom Hartman Book Club is On Fire, The Burning Case for Green New Deal by Naomi Klein. This is from the epilogue, the very end of the book, and it's titled The Capsule Case for Green New Deal. Critics of the Green New Deal have plenty of serious arguments for why all this is doomed. Political paralysis in Washington is real. Even in a world where climate change, denying Republicans, were swept out of power, there would still be plenty of centrist Democrats convinced that their constituents had no appetite for radical change. The plans are expensive, and getting the budgets approved will be a Herculean effort. A better course of action we hear would be to advance climate policies that appeal to many on the right, like a shift from coal to nuclear power, or a small tax on carbon that returns the revenues as a dividend to every citizen. The main trouble with these incremental approaches is that they simply won't get the job done. In order to win support from Republicans soaked in fossil fuel money, the price on carbon would be too low to make much of an impact. Nuclear power is expensive and slow to roll out compared with renewables, and that's not to mention the risks associated with uranium mining and waste storage. The truth is we cannot lower emissions as steeply and as rapidly as required to swerve off our perilous trajectory without a sweeping industrial and infrastructure overhaul. The good news is that the Green New Deal isn't nearly as impractical or unrealistic as its many critics claim. I've made the case for why that is throughout the book, but what follows are nine more reasons the Green New Deal has a fighting chance, a chance that will increase every time we go out and make the case. One, it will be a massive job creator. Every part of the world that has invested heavily in renewables and efficiency has found these sectors to be much more powerful job creators than fossil fuels. When New York State made a commitment to get half its energy from renewables by 2030, it immediately saw a spike in job creation. The accelerated timeline of the U.S. Green New Deal will turn it into a jobs machine. Even without federal support, indeed with active sabotage from the White House, the green economy is already creating more jobs than oil and gas. According to the 2018 U.S. Energy and Employment Review, jobs in wind, solar energy efficiency, and other clean energy sectors outnumbered fossil fuels by a rate of 3 to 1. This is happening because of a combination of state and municipal incentives and the plummeting costs of renewables. A Green New Deal would take the industry supernova while ensuring that the jobs have salaries and benefits comparable 
to those offered in the oil and gas sector. There's no shortage of research to support this. For instance, a 2019 study on the job impacts of a Green New Deal-style program in the state of Colorado found that many more jobs would be created than lost. The study, published by the Department of Economics and Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, looked at what it would take for the state to achieve a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030. It found that roughly 585 non-management jobs would be lost, but that with an investment of $14.5 billion a year in clean energy, quote, Colorado will generate about 100,000 jobs per year in the state. There are many more studies with similarly striking findings. A plan put forward by the U.S. Blue-Green Alliance, a body that brings together unions and environmentalists, estimated that a $40 billion annual investment in public transit and high-speed rail for six years would produce more than 3.5 million jobs during that period. And according to a report from the European Transport Workers Federation, comprehensive policies to reduce emissions in the transport sector by 80% would create 7 million new jobs across that continent, while another 5 million clean energy jobs in Europe would slash electricity emissions by 90%. Number two, paying for it will create a fairer economy. As the 2018 IPCC report on keeping warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius made clear, if we don't take transformative action to lower emissions, the costs will be astronomical. The panel's estimate is that the economic damages of allowing temperatures to increase by 2 degrees Celsius, as opposed to 1.5, would hit $69 trillion globally. Of course, rolling out a Green New Deal would have large costs as well, and the plan's advocates have pointed to a variety of ways this can be financed. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has said that the U.S. version should be financed the way any previous emergency spending has been, by the U.S. Congress simply authorizing the funds, backstopped by the Treasury, the world's currency of last resort. According to New Consensus, the think tank closely associated with their policy proposals, because, quote, the Green New Deal will produce new goods and services to keep pace with and absorb new expenditures, there is no more reason to let fear about financing halt progress than there was to let it halt wars or tax cuts, end quote. The European Spring proposal for a Green New Deal, meanwhile, calls for a global minimum corporate tax rate to capture the tax revenue that the Apples and Googles of the world currently dodge with transnational schemes. It also calls for a reversal of monetary orthodoxy with public investment floating green bonds supported by central banks. Quote, to address the true existential threat that we face today, we must reverse the economic policies that brought us to this brink. Austerity means extinction, end quote. Some analysts, like Christian Parenti, have emphasized that federal governments can drive the transition with their purchasing policies. In short, there are all kinds of ways to raise financing, including ways that attack untenable levels of wealth concentration and shift the burden to those most responsible for climate pollution. And it's not hard to figure out who that is. We know, thanks to research from the Climate Accountability Institute, that a whopping 71% of greenhouse gas emissions since 1988 can be traced to just 100 corporations. On Fire by Naomi Klein. Chara in Rockwall, Texas. Am I saying your name right? You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Yes. My question is, why doesn't the Democratic Party explain the number of people that have died in from the COVID in context of airplane crashes? So if we've had 150,000 people die and there's an average of 200 people per plane, that would be 750 crashes in six months. I mean, that is an astounding number. So it looks to me like that would be a good way to relate to people, the severity. Bye, Trish. 
I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that there has been a numbness, a desensitization to the loss of life when a thousand people are dying every day. And as you put it, that would be like three major plane crashes every day. I do think we need to emphasize that this has happened and it's avoidable. I mean, that's the sad thing. It's avoidable. You know, I mean, I wish my colleague Louis Gomard well. I, I have nothing but hopes that he recovers. But the fact that he's going to the Congress and not wearing a mask and then announcing that he has coronavirus with his staff without putting a mask on. I mean, this is behavior that is totally preventable and it's leading to people's getting sick and in some cases people dying and we have to tell people what's going on. George in Rotunda West, Florida. You're on the air with Congressman Kona. Yes, my question is if the Democrats take control of the Senate and the White House next year, is there a plan to rebuild the VA health care system, you know, fill the 50,000 jobs that's uh, missing there? George, I do think there is. I mean, it's not just the VA system where we've got to fill the jobs. It's so many federal agencies. You've seen the State Department hollowed out. You've seen EPA hollowed out. You've seen the Justice Department in places hollowed out. I mean, you've seen a systematic assault on governing agencies that the Trump administration has undertaken, which is why it's unfathomable to have four more years of Trump. I mean, he would really just totally erode the governing agencies. So absolutely, we need to hire back people at the VA, but also in the other agencies. Michael in San Antonio, Texas. Um, Congressman, appreciate you guys taking my call. I have one question. So for the last couple of years, we keep on hearing about the GOP dragging big tech guys in front of Congress and testifying about conservative bias over Twitter, Facebook, and whatever and whatnot. When are the Democrats going to start dragging in the people from iHeartMedia and Sinclair and asking them, hey, why are you guys canceling all these progressive radio shows across the uh, iHeart format, Sinclair format, or, or whatever it is? Because I listen to iHeart, and I would, get, I would get Tom, Stephanie Miller, all of them on iHeart. But then slowly but surely, they started dropping radio stations on iHeart. We all know why they're doing it, but why don't you guys fight fire with fire? turn around and do exactly what the DOP are doing to the big tech guys and drag iHeart and Sinclair in front of Congress and demand answers. Got it. Thank you, Michael. That's a brilliant point. We should. The reality is, I mean, look, social media and tech has its issues and definitely needs to be regulated, but there is cable news, there is right-wing talk radio, there are the local news broadcasting like Sinclair that have totally shut out liberal information. Tom, I'd love your perspective on this. I mean, I keep hearing from people that the left talk radio and radio programs are not nearly as prominent. You obviously are one of the people who have succeeded. I mean, what, what is your view about the structural challenges that, that we may face? What I have learned in the 16 years I've been doing this show is that platform is everything. CBS put me on a big station in Seattle real early on. This was like back in 2005. And in fact, they were programming that against an Air America station. And we just did really, really well. We beat Limbaugh in the ratings constantly. We, had, we were on a big stick, a big station. And the echo of that, even though that station got taken down when CBS got acquired by Cumulus, maybe, I don't know, six, eight years ago, the echo of that is that there's, we still have a huge audience in Seattle, and now they listen on KBCS and a few of our other nonprofit stations. Platform is absolutely everything. And as a result of media consolidation, which is largely the result of the 1996 Telecommunications Act, 
You have companies that have a political agenda. I have sat with one of the vice presidents of Salem Radio. He's, you know, we're from a Bible publishing background. We'll never have a liberal on the air. In the office of the United States Senator, sat with one of the owners of a network that had over 800 stations in the country, right-wing radio on about a third of them. And he said we would never, he would never put a liberal on the air because liberals want to raise his taxes. We know the story with Rock, you know, with uh, Fox News and and you know the story with Sinclair and things like that, but platforms are huge. And so if you don't put people on the platforms, if you control the platforms and lock them out, then it's real easy to say, oh yeah, that never works. So yeah, that's my take. No, that's, so I think that's a great suggestion, and I, I'm gonna to talk to David Sisley that we ought to be looking at the broader media landscape as well that's, that's keeping bias against liberal. I can tell you this, the progressive stations that are doing well that we're on in Chicago, it's locally owned. In Minneapolis, it's locally owned. In Los Angeles, it's a nonprofit station. It's locally owned, essentially. And other stations around the country. Most of the internet radio stations that we're on. Is that a big issue? iHeartRadio is the remnant of Clear Channel, and they've got, I don't know, seven, eight hundred stations around the country, and, and I think that we are on one or two of them. They just shut down our San Francisco affiliate a couple of weeks ago, which was catching quite an audience. We were getting a lot of calls from San Francisco out of that. And so now a lot of those San Francisco people are shifting over to YouTube, or they're going to SiriusXM or Free Speech TV. You know, people will continue to listen, but it really is the platforms. And, and this is, I, I've got a book out in a couple of weeks about Monopoly, right? Ralph Nader wrote the foreword to it. There's a whole chapter in there about this. But basically, well, what's happened is... I'll read it. I'll the, read it. And I think we ought to... I think yeah. Paul made a great point that we got it. We should have had the hearings on tech, absolutely, but we need to have hearings on this as well. The other parts of our country that have been monopolized. Yeah, I would do it about media ownership, though, because when local... When you have local ownership of radio and television stations, you have diverse programming. When you've got national ownership, no, the, the predators end up winning the show. Judy in Denver, Colorado, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Hi, thank you. All the media needs broken up. But my question is, the post office has been paying more than $5 billion into a pension fund for 14 years now. Why don't you stop that payment and the only entity in the world that has to pay this for more than 75 years pension worth and end that program that no other entity in the world has to do and give them half that money back because it's almost $80 billion that's there. Give half of that money to the Postal Service and they'll be fine. Quit allowing the Republicans to control make them pay this $5 billion every year. Got it, Judy. Or give them all of that money back. Yeah, I appreciate it. You're, you're making exactly the right point. And people don't know, but this was not some law passed a long time ago. This was George W. Bush that recently passed this law requiring the post office to pay for up to 75 years of people's retirement security. And it was an absurd law. It was never done before. And Bush and those around him basically wanted to find a way to privatize the Postal Service. And so we need to make it clear that that's what the constraints are on the Postal Service. Their agenda is privatization. When FedEx can deliver letters at 50 cents across the country in three days, uh, we could talk about privatization. They can't. Obviously, there's a reason we have a, a postal service, and that's because people shouldn't have their mail be contingent on their wealth. Well, as it is, we've got in this country our health care, our education, our jobs, so many things contingent on our wealth. 
the last thing we need is now to have our mail contingent on our wealth. Trump is clearly trying to attack the post office. Are the Republicans on board with this? Yes, I think the Republicans have been on board with the privatization of the postal office since Bush. I think the one risk for Trump, I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, I think the one risk for him is that he may actually diminish the vote by mail for Republicans in the election. But I think he thinks that's worth the risk of diminishing the turnout from our side. Look, in a conventional election, everything goes according to plan. He loses. So he's trying to take any risk and he'd rather diminish turnout on both sides. Yeah, so he can claim fraud and God only knows. Yeah. In this week's science revolution, will the virus stop the Trump cult the way defeat in World War II stopped the fascist cult? Dr. Michael Mann is with us on how the Trump administration boosts deregulation by undervaluing the impacts of climate change. Tony Corvo drops by about a new rule. Americans are now eating chickens with cancer. Ew, is that healthy? He'll let you know. Jenny Harbine tells us about a new lawsuit to stop Trump from handing public land to coal companies. Plus, geeky science. School openings? Well, studies now show young kids could spread COVID-19 as easily as older children and adults. Tune into The Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Jonathan in Portland, Oregon. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hi, Congressman Khanna. I was excited to hear about your Masks for All Act. And I wanted to know if you're acquainted with what the country of Taiwan is doing. It's, they have a system called a name-based mask distribution system. It's part of their national health care system. And the national health insurance pays for masks. And people order them either online or with an app or call. They make uh, so they don't have to wait online. They're available in all the convenience stores like 7-Eleven. And I just wanted to know if you're aware of what Taiwan is doing, because they're also donating 2 million masks to the United States. Yeah, well, thank you. We were aware of Taiwan, and it, it was part of the research towards this bill. And I, I don't think we should adopt everything that Taiwan's doing. I mean, some of their digital surveillance, I think, it violates privacy. But I do think in the case of having a culture of everyone wearing masks and providing people with masks, that's something our country should absolutely do. Cassandra in Camas, Washington. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Good morning, both of you gentlemen. I have a suggestion, and I would like your opinion about it, and think if it's something that is even realistically a possibility. We have less than, what, 90 days or so to the election. At this point, I think it would be an amazing feat if, after listening to President Obama's speech at John Lewis's funeral, if we were to take the power of past presidents and the power of current congressmen and senators, Democrats mostly, obviously, and put it behind the Black Lives Matter issue and say, we need to make this the focal issue of our country right now because it is at the core, in my opinion, of what is rotten in our system, which leads to all the the disease and capitalism and this sense of competition, which in the, you know, inherent in the, the word of competition is there's a winner, there's a loser. And obviously black people have been the loser for 400 years plus. What if you were to take the power of all of you representatives and politicians, not be the voice, let the Black Lives Matter people speak, but stand behind them and make it something that people saw on their televisions, on billboards, anywhere, plaster it so that they understand this is what we're fighting for, which is our integrity, our dignity, and our humanity. And until we address the core of this and let that 
stone ripple out from the dropping of it into the water to have some positive thing happen instead of all the negative things. We need to be able to link fascism and everything else to this, but it is still the core of this problem. And I'll take mine off the air, but thank you, gentlemen, and please, what do you think? Well, Desiree, first of all, I share your view on Obama's speech, and I think your point is that the core of the problem, if I understood, was the sense of having some stakeholder society where we don't just have excessive extractive capitalism exploiting people, exploiting workers, exploiting people based on race, that we have a sense of building a much more just and equitable economy and I and society. And I, I absolutely think that that has to be our mission, and particularly post-COVID, has to be our mission in reconstructing a, a far more equitable economy. Hey, we're putting together a series of American history books. It started with a hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. Then we had the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America. Then the hidden history of the Republican War on voting. Coming out soon is the hidden history of monopolies, how big business destroyed the American dream. And then next spring, it's going to be the hidden history of oligarchy and tyranny. Welcome back. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. You are on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hi, Tom. Uh, hello, Congressman. What I am concerned with is the rumors I'm hearing about a bill being presented that would eliminate any corporation doing business in the United States of having to pay the contribution, their share of the contribution into Social Security. This is was an op-ed pitching this in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, by the way, Norma. Yes. And you see, this is actually the only benefit any of these hourly wage employees have. Once this is eliminated, a corporation like Walmart or Amazon would have an immediate increase of profit at the bottom line. And this would eliminate any obligation to a, an American citizen that they employ or to the country. This would slowly defund Social Security, and it will eliminate the only retirement program that American citizens have, because so many retirement pensions have already been stolen. Is this going to be allowed to destroy what's left of the economy? Because people like me on Social Security, we will never again be able to go shopping. So retail will also tank, which will destroy a lot of jobs and businesses across the country. Are y'all going to allow this to happen, or are you going to stand up and, and fight to stop this? Norma, we're going to do everything we can to stop it, and it's never going to happen as long as Democrats uh, control at least uh, one branch of, of government. I mean, there's no way we're going to allow for corporations to stop paying into Social Security, especially at a time where corporate profits are a record high. Amazon is one of the richest companies ever in the world. The least they can do is pay for Social Security. They frankly need to be doing a lot more, like providing a livable wage and having health care benefits uh, that are adequate until we get Medicare for all. So you can rest assured, I don't think there's a single Democrat in the House or the Senate who would in any way support that measure. Steve in St. Genevieve, Missouri, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hi, Tom. Hi, Kana. My question is, we all know the number of deaths in the United States, but what I'm not hearing is the number or the percentage of people who are either temporarily disabled or permanently disabled after they recover from COVID. Thank you. Steve, that's a um, 
really important point. In fact, my wife and I were just talking about it, and she said, you know, the, the, no one is talking about the permanent damage that may happen uh, because of this disease. We just don't know. Uh, we unfortunately know someone who uh, had COVID early on. They were in the hospital. They recovered, but they still have lingering impact. And I think when you look at that issue, it's probably another couple hundred thousand people who have been affected by this and who may have current health issues and in some of those cases may have ongoing health issues. So it's absolutely something we need to discuss. And what we need to discuss is what are we going to do to help those individuals recover to the extent possible. Philip in Island Pond, Vermont. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. Yeah, I'm really well-versed on history. And uh, my, my big concern is, my question is, what are the progressive representatives doing to convert the uh, centrist Democrats? There's over 100 of them. They just voted to increase their defense budget. And, I mean, if that doesn't change, not much is going to get done, even if the Democrats do take the presidency. And some other things. If the centrist Democrats continue along, the same old, same old is going to happen. So what are the progressives doing to help at least shift the thinking of these people? Well, Joe, I tried my part. I co-chaired Bernie's campaign. We tried to get him to become president. And, you know, in, in seriousness, we came very, very close. Bernie won in, uh, in terms of votes in Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada. And if, it, if there was a different outcome in South Carolina, I think he would be the nominee and I think he'd be the president. So I say that to say that the progressive wing of this party is in the ascendancy. We're fighting a neoliberal ideology of 40 years, but we've made a lot of progress. And I'll give you a a concrete example. I had an amendment to stop the modernization of the ICBMs. The ICBMs are the biggest threat to nuclear war, because at least when you have a submarine or if you have an aircraft that have a bomb, you can call them back. And an ICBM, you launch it, there's no calling it back. And so we worked with Bill Perry to have that amendment. Bill Perry said, you're probably going to get three votes on this. We lost in the House Armed Services, but we had 11 votes to 43. And even Adam Smith, the chair, voted with us. That's how we build. We just have to keep pushing. The fact we got 93 votes this time against the defense budget was better than last time. I'm confident eventually we'll prevail because the truth is on our side. Rich in Bay City, Michigan. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. We know that the postmaster is eliminating overtime and the mail is piling up. Is there any way that we could ask retired postal workers, especially from about October 1st to December 3rd, to volunteer without pay and to handle all the mail-in ballots? Rich, I appreciate that. I think the issue is that they're doing this deliberately. They're doing it deliberately partly because of the election, and they're doing it deliberately because they want to tarnish the reputation of the Postal Service. I mean, the reason we every American likes the Postal Service is most Americans know that you put something in the mailbox and it's going to get to where you want it to go, and it's going to get there reliably. But if they can't do it, if there are delays, if their mail isn't getting delivered, then suddenly people are going to start losing confidence in the Postal Service, and that's going to give them an argument for privatization. So this is a cynical, deliberate strategy to erode people's trust in the Postal Service. And what we need to do is pass legislation to require them to not make these cuts. Yeah, amen. Congressman Connor, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's always great talking with you. Tom, thank you. Always get great ideas from your listeners. Thank you. So we need to be thinking right now about how to Trump-proof the presidency in the future. I mean, Donald Trump is causing all kinds of chaos and disasters, and things are, frankly, I think, going to get much worse before they get better. And I don't think they're going to get better until after January 21st or noon on January 20th. And that's assuming that 
absolute craziness doesn't happen, but there's a bunch of steps that we need to take from recalibrating or fixing how we do our elections to fixing how we handle money in politics to fixing the pardon power of the presidency to specifically saying that if a president is found to be a criminal, he or she can still be held to account. I mean, just straightforward stuff. And we need to be getting ready to do this. I lay it all out in a new video that you can find over at TomHartman.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Steve in Everett, Washington. Hey, Steve, it says here you want to defend Trump. Really? Yeah, I, I just statistically, we are the most unhealthy country in the world. So, you know, obesity makes your chance of dying go up exponentially. And uh, it's no wonder that we uh, lead the world in deaths. I mean, it's just. It's just the nature of the beast with all the degrading of our food supplies and all the other things, I mean. But hang on just a second here, Steve. And yes, we have an unhealthy population, and I would lay a lot of that at the feet of the fact that we have, we are the only industrialized country in the world that does not have a national health care plan. And that leads to two negative outcomes. Number one, people don't go to the doctor enough because they can't afford it and they're afraid to. And number two, we don't have a societal incentive to encourage good behavior. When I was, when we did our show from Denmark, we were in Copenhagen for two weeks doing our show from Danish radio's headquarters about six, six eight years ago. And I had on one of the one of the you know Denmark's leading politicians. No, it was the mayor of Copenhagen, as I recall. And he was talking about how they had just turned something like 20% of all the streets in the cities into bicycle-only streets. I mean, it was just a massive change. And as you walk through the streets of Copenhagen, you see these streets that are just you know oceans of bicycles. And I'm like, well, why did you do this? And he said, well, we have a national health insurance program, and so we all pay for the health of everybody. And so we decided that it would be good, it would lower the costs of our national health insurance program if everybody rode their bicycle to work. And so we're trying to encourage that. And other countries that have national health insurance programs have really aggressive anti-smoking programs. You know, they would never in their wildest dreams put junk food vending machines in schools. They have taxes on junk food, things like that, um, because it's to the advantage of everybody because everybody's paying for the health care. Here in the United States, we've got we don't have a single payer health care. We don't have Medicare for all. And so there is no incentive for unhealthy behavior. And so, yes, we have a lot of people who are unhealthy. About a third of America has what is referred to as a pre-existing condition right now. Heart disease, diabetes, obesity, things like that. And that's a real problem. But that doesn't mean that Donald Trump is right. No, no, Tom, I just wanted to mention that I just got back from Europe. I went from uh, Amsterdam to Czechoslovakia. And the one thing that I noticed, you know, being an American and all, is that they had a McDonald's, a Kentucky Fried Chicken, a Burger King, a Starbucks on every corner from Amsterdam to Czechoslovakia. So they're on their way to becoming, you know, just like us, too. So... No, they have fast food all over, Steve, but people, I can tell you from having lived in Europe for a year, that, you know, people go, that's, that's a treat. 
Well, you don't have the widespread poverty that we have here where people, you know, literally the only way they can eat is to go to fast food restaurants. The only way they can afford to eat. You don't, by and large, you don't have that in Europe. Yes, you have fast food. But you, I, I guarantee you, if you traveled around Europe, and I'm assuming this was before COVID, it must have been more than six months ago, but if you travel around Europe, you will not see the kind of obesity that you see in the United States. And having traveled all over the United States, I can tell you it's worse in red states than it is, in, you know, in, in poorer states, which are typically the red states and, and places where they don't even have Medicare, you know, Medicaid for everybody than it is oh, no, in, no, no. in the... They've got it going on, but I talked to some people there and they said they've gone from, you know, from little to big, you know, just from, you know, that particular instance. And I know that they don't allow our food oh, over there, fast but food. they're international, so they have to because they're being paid off, yeah. you know, just like everybody else. And again, yeah. I, I just wanted to mention that why are our me- medical healthcare professionals advising people to become more healthy and, you know, giving them a better chance of surviving this thing. Yeah, I get it. Steve, thanks for the call. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.